VA Health and Benefits, official mobile app for VA Health and Benefits. VA's official mobile app is a smarter, more convenient way for veterans to manage and carry their VA Health and Benefits information. One veteran notes, I went into my local hardware store and logged into my VA mobile app. A quick glance at my phone showed them I was a veteran and I was able to get the veteran discount without any paperwork. It was easy and convenient. Download the app via the Apple Store at https colon forward slash forward slash apple dot co forward slash three uppercase j lowercase b lowercase k nine uppercase o lowercase l or download the app via the Google Play Store at https colon forward slash forward slash bit dot ly forward slash 3 uppercase Q 5 lowercase Q 9 uppercase L 5 Hello and welcome again to Oscar Mike Radio I'm your host. My name is Travis. Oscar Mike Radio is part of the Hoobazoo Network. You can find out more on hoobazoo.com. I want to thank my sponsors, Joyce Asac of Asac Real Estate, Army National Guard veteran Mark Holmes of Reapers Detailing and Power Washing, and my supporters, all veteran-owned businesses, Simper Savage, Bottom Gun Coffee, and Quezon Shaving Company. And... I got a special one today. Well, they're all special, but I'm always pleased as punch when uh, a guest comes on, talks with me, and then we get a chance to connect again and talk about more stuff. There's always stories, always things to learn. And, you know, I, I got a really good education today. You might have remembered my guest from uh, the situation with uh, PFC Denisha Montgomery Smith. Uh, Colonel Wes Martin, U.S. Army retired, and he's back today to talk about some things regarding um, Buffalo Soldiers leadership and uh, General Colin Powell and other things. Colonel, welcome back to Oscar Mike Radio. Travis, it's always a pleasure. Absolutely, absolutely. And, you know, you know, we'll talk about Denisha another time. I know there's a lot of work going on with that and want to thank you for your support in that regard. But we got to talking about the fact that it's Black History Month. And you had done this this write-up and this work with regard to Buffalo Soldiers. And started just poking around with people that listen to the show. And a lot of them, like myself, understood that we've heard the term, but don't know a whole lot. And so I read your your write-up that you have on your on your website about it. And you know, how, where did your interest get in, peaked, if you will, about Buffalo Soldiers? When uh, I was uh... I'm actually from uh, New Mexico. Uh, the, the New England accent doesn't uh, reveal that, but I am. I'm a uh, citizen of New Mexico, and that for many, many years, I was in the reserve uh, forces, Army Reserve in New Mexico. I retired active duty, but much of my command time uh, was in the reserve in New Mexico. And so I was in the Southwest, and I'm, I'm really honored to say my units 
were comprised of a really great crosscut of American society. Uh, we had Native Americans, Apache and Navajo. We had Black soldiers. We had Anglo soldiers. We had Oriental and, and uh, Hispanic. And it was great. And the way we got along was really well. We worked as a team and we didn't worry about the shade of somebody's skin or their religion or anything else. We focused on mission. Well, the Buffalo soldiers have a great legacy in New Mexico. And that's what got me interested in it. Plus, between uh, Albuquerque and closer to Las Cruces, New Mexico, down on the southern border, is uh, Fort Selden. And I would stop in there and see the Buffalo Soldiers Monument because they had been based there and over by Silver City, uh, Fort Biard. And just the legacy of the work that they had done. And I had wanted to write, back then I was writing a series. It was during my days working with Colonel David Hackworth, and he was giving me a lot of leverage. And I was writing articles on lessons of the ages. And I wanted to write one on the Buffalo soldiers of the Southwest. Well, what happened is I had studied, and I had studied, and I had studied. And I had too much information to put into an article. Uh, so what I had to do is wait about a year. And then I saw Danny Glover's movie on Buffalo soldiers. And he hit the spirit just right. So what I was able to do is take the spirit that he presented with the, the knowledge that still had not eroded uh, because it was that important, it had not eroded. And then I was able to, just from memory, sit down and write uh, the Buffalo Soldiers of the Southwest. And my, my research got into how they were uh, uh, formed. And the fact is, there was a forerunner to them in the, uh, the uh, Civil War. Remember, remember the Denzel Washington movie, Glory, yeah, about yeah. the 54th Massachusetts uh, uh, yeah. Volunteers, Infantry Volunteers, Shaw's Brigade. Excellent, excellent movie. Uh, powerful performance by Morgan Freeman and, of course, Denzel Washington. I've never known those two gentlemen to do anything less than a powerful performance. And Matthew Broderick did a good job. But, I mean, he was with these two giants. And it, it just all came together. Um, and Grant had learned the value of uh, black soldiers. And matter of fact, Grant was probably one of the most progressive presidents we had at, uh, ever. Um, he was, uh, his family was abolitionists and his wife's family was not. And they put Grant in a bad position when they, he and his wife first got married, they gave as a wedding gift, a slave to Grant. And Grant ended up giving the person freedom and uh, uh, which was very typical of Grant. Well, after the, uh, in the, because of what happened with Shaw's Brigade, originally the black soldiers were supposed to do the run at uh, Petersburg, St. Petersburg, when the, uh, the crater blew up the big hole in the Confederate perimeter. Right. The black soldiers had been trained and they were to run around the edges of the, uh, the depression, the crater. Well, Grant, the night before, realized, remembered what happened to Shaw's brigade and said, we're not repeating this again. So he replaced him with a white brigade who ended up running down into the crater. And then they had the walls and the Confederates by then regrouped. Unfortunately, the black soldiers were not able to make the run because if they had, Grant would have busted the Confederacy right at uh, St. Petersburg. 
or Petersburg, excuse me. Moving on, it, it became realized in 1866, uh, Grant was not yet president. Uh, the president was uh, uh, Andrew Johnson. And it was decided, let's create uh, cavalry and infantry regiments of the uh, black soldiers. And they did. It was the 9th Cavalry, the 10th Cavalry, the 24th Infantry, the 25th Infantry, and the 2nd of the 38th Infantry Regiment. They went through a lot of prejudice. They went through a lot of problems in being formed and being respected and trusted. But all these former slaves proved themselves to be well-disciplined, well-organized, and they could take the, uh, the, the, the horrors of uh, the Southwest. Many years ago, and, and eventually they did get stationed in the Southwest. They, they worked their way through Texas. Um, yeah, I was, I was, I was going to ask about that, because like, when I think of Buffalo Soldiers, I think of the Civil War. I, I'm reading the, the write-up you did. I'm like, they were in the Southwest. So yeah, kind of tell us about that. They were, they were in, the, in the West uh, throughout. They were even in uh, uh, Oklahoma. And later, if you uh, on in time, if you go to Oklahoma, you see this drainage ditch that uh, there was a problem with Fort Sill. It was wet, um, as dry as sometimes Fort Sill gets. It was wet. And a lieutenant, a West Point graduate, later uh, in the, uh, the legacy of Buffalo soldiers, uh, Henry Flipper, designed this ditch and he was able to release uh, get the water flowing out so that fort sill was able to be opened up unfortunately uh flipper lieutenant flipper had to suffer the the the, the prejudice and everything else and he was set up and he was court-martialed and later after he died there was a, a major study revealed re 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 done by presidential decree he was uh, released of all charges and everything against him, uh, but he, he put up with the prejudice. He first worked uh, with uh, like General Sturgis and G General Grierson, and they treated him with a lot of respect. Both of them were open-minded, but the, it was the Comanches that ended up giving them the term Buffalo Soldiers. Now, there's some debate as to how they got the, the term, but it pretty much narrows down to the, uh, the the shade of the skin, the color of the hair, and the respect that the Native Americans had for the buffalo. They found they were fighting these uh, soldiers in blue who fought very, very well, and they had a lot of discipline, and they moved very well as a unit. As a buffalo herd, you watch a buffalo herd, and it will move as a unit. And, and it's pretty right, much right. So these people were very, very skilled at what they were doing. Well, you look at what they went through in slavery. They went through the worst of life. And now they were freed from the slavery and they were given a chance to perform. A lot of discipline problems existed in the military at that time. Uh, Custer, who I do not respect at all, uh, when he moved, they used to be a joke that he used to travel with a big uh, uh, ditch or a hole in the ground that he would put his prisoners in. Uh, and what I mean as prisoners, once he's given discipline too. He was very brutal to his subordinates and he's very self-serving. 
But the discipline that problems had existed, for instance, with the Bowery boys that would join the military, they didn't have those problems with the uh, the, uh, the the black regiments. Uh, we'll call them the Buffalo soldiers. Um, we're a little bit ahead of uh, that right now. But when they got to the Southwest, they were critical because when you look at the Southwest itself, first was the Native Americans. You had the, the Apache, you have the Navajo, you have the Comanche. These are some very fierce tribes. And even, even uh, getting to the Southwest, you have the Southern Cheyenne. Right, right. These are very uh, fierce tribes. In one sense, we are fortunate that the Apaches never could get more organized, except under Cochise. They could never get more organized than a few hundred people. Because if they had stayed as organized as they were under Cochise, uh, before Cochise died, the American uh, infantry in Calvary would have had a very rough time settling into the uh, Southwest as was, uh, was anybody else. But you had the Native Americans. Upon them came the Hispanics. With the exception of about a dozen years of the Pueblo revolts, the, the Hispanics were uh, growing in the area, populating. After the Mexican-American War, the Americans, uh, the United States inherited much of the uh, Southwest and in the Gatson Purchase, we inherited the rest. Now came the Anglos. And as uh, you realize by the Lincoln County War between uh, Murphy and Chisholm and Tunstall, uh, even the, the, the Anglos couldn't get along with each other. So you had the, the Native Americans who had fights between themselves, you had the Hispanics, and then you had the uh, Anglos who all came on top of each other. And there was a lot of disharmony and there was a lot of uh, uh, difficulty bringing them all together. Bringing them together fell to the 9th and 10th Cavalry. The 9th was under Colonel Hatch. The 10th was under Colonel Grierson. The 10th originally started in Western Texas and then went to Arizona, but then had to come back and help uh, uh, Hatch uh, with the uh, wars with the uh, Cochise and Nana. I'll start for a second and see if you have any questions. Um, well, it, it's just, um, you know, I'm sitting there thinking, okay, that they served for a while and, you know, went away. I didn't, I didn't realize that they were respected as much as they were by the, the tribes in the Southwest, that the other, that the, the tribes looked at how these soldiers carried themselves, acted, coordinated and executed. And were like, okay, this is a different caliber of soldier than what we're used to dealing with. And we've got to either change what we're doing or respect them. It, the, the difference must have been pretty stark for, you know, these tribes to have made that determination, right? It, it was, uh, and it's unfortunate that uh, really the Hispanics and the Anglos should have given them as much respect as the uh, Native American tribes did. The Comanches and the Cheyenne realized real quick, these people, they're, they're solid fighters. And like I mentioned several times before, they're well-disciplined. They've been through the worst of life. So military life was not difficult for them. Um, and then not only in the, the social environment, but you look at the, the, the region of the Southwest, 
Years ago, Johnny Cash wrote a ballad called Mean as Hell, and it's awesome. And he's describing uh, how God, uh, um, God had the Southwest and he wanted to get rid of it. And the devil needed some extra land to start a hell of his own, as uh, Johnny Cash said. And the Lord says, yes, there's plenty of land, but I left it down by the Rio Grande. Fact is, oh boy, the stuff is so poor, I don't think you could use it as a hell anymore. But the devil takes it, and he says, now I've got all that's needed to make a good hell, and he has succeeded. And it writes, uh, th th this is beautiful, it talks about the Southwest. He began by putting thorns all over the trees. He mixed up the sands with millions of fleas, scattered tarantulas along the road, put thorns on cactus and horns on toads. Um, lengthened the horns of the Texas steer, put an addition to the rabbit's ear. Put a little uh, devil in the bronco steed, poison the feet of the centipede. Rattlesnake bites you, the scorpion stings. Mosquito delights you with his buzzing wings. And it goes in the heat in the summer is 110, too hot for the devil, too hot for men. That is the Southwest. When that's I was, was going to say, sir, you go to Yuma Proving Ground or MCAS Yuma, and that ballad is is shockingly correct because I've been there, and it's it's it is like hell. It is well, and what's great about it? Uh, I used to be on the uh, Special Weapons and Tactics team for Sandia National Labs, part of the Department of Energy, and we used to patrol the desert. That is the desert. So when I ended up going to Iraq. And it was hot and people complained about um, how barren the desert is. I felt like I was at home. Okay, it wasn't 110, it was 120. But one day somebody asked me, what's New Mexico like? And I just turned around, looked and said, yeah, pretty much like this. Uh, so it's, that is uh, New Mexico. And here's where the Buffalo soldiers were at, as well as all the other people settling it. So they came in and they did, and it wasn't, it wasn't an easy run because, like I said, you still have the Native Americans uh, fighting with each other, fighting with the Anglos, fighting with the Hispanics, Hispanics fighting with the um, uh, Anglos and the Native Americans. But the Buffalo soldiers did come in, do the patrolling, and brought peace. But not only that, but in their patrols, they would, they would develop in maps. They were, uh, much of this area, except for the Native Americans, had not been seen before uh, to the point that it was documented what is there. Uh, and as a result of all the survey teams that they escorted, all the supply columns they escorted, all the work they did, we came to understand the Southwest so much better. But we talked about the respect they had from the Native Americans. Let me read a couple comments. Sure. One is from uh, uh, before Congress, uh, General of the Army William Sherman stated, the Blacks are a quiet, kindly, peaceful race of men. He said they were very good people, but they would not make good soldiers because they're kindly, they're peaceful. Well, he was proven wrong by the successes they had in combat operations. This one is much more despicable. Las Cruces, uh, New Mexico, is uh, down at the base of New Mexico. Right, right. In the uh, um, Rio Grande. Here's what a local newspaper said. Las Cruces editor who recommended that the 9th Cavalry be disbanded and its soldiers used to, and I quote, contribute to the nation's wealth as pickers of cotton and hoers of corn or to the amusement of its travel 
traveling minstrel troupe. That is about as despicable of a comment as can be made. It gets even more despicable considering these are the people who's actually in your region defending you and making, uh, preventing things from happening. Two of the great wars that they had, one was against Geronimo. Geronimo was very charismatic. He, fortunately, unlike Cochise, he could never get more than 300 people to follow him. But he, he ended up causing his raids and everything until finally he had to be captured. And I, I disagree with this. He ended up getting sent first to Florida. Then he was allowed to die at uh, um, Fort Sill, another warlord. I say more skilled than Geronimo was Victorio, and some, he's uh, famous quite often in the old westerns as the uh, the war chief, uh, and he was good. He had tactics that I, I myself, when I was the force protection anti-terrorism uh, anti officer for all of Iraq, I would look back at some of Victorio's strategies of what he would do. Wherever he went, even if it was just for a couple hours and he'd settle his band down, he'd put up fighting positions. Uh, and I've been uh, to Victorio's Peak where a major battle occurred and he was only going to be there for a couple days. And because the area is under strict control, you can see where Victorio had his people build up their fighting positions. And Victorio learned to play the, uh, the U.S. border and the Mexican border. He would come in and raid and then go across and uh, go into Mexico and do his raid there. And when the federalities would have to come after him, he'd slip back into the United States. But what happened, Grierson came over from Arizona to help out Hatch, because uh, Colonel Hatch uh, had his hands totally full in just trying to maintain operations and now he's fighting a major war with Victorio. So and the two of them were close and they worked in unison with each other. And with the Buffalo soldiers, Grierson developed a plan. He and Hatch chased Victorio down into Mexico. And Grierson, because he had recently been in Texas, he knew that real estate really well and he knew Victorio was going to come back up with his band of 300 and start hitting the watering holes in Western Texas. So what Grierson did is he put 10 people per watering hole all over so that Victorio could be denied water. And think about this, 10 soldiers guarding a water hole against 300. That's not good odds. I was gonna but say, how- Buffalo how, how, soldiers, they, he had the 10 Buffalo soldiers each at each watering hole to guard against the 300. Grierson had the main force and he was chasing Victorio. So Victorio would come up to this watering hole and they would, it would be defended by 10. And, he, and he, so he would have to charge him and try to quickly get, get, uh, get to the watering hole. And then before Grierson was on his tail and he'd come to one and realize it's defended, it's gonna take him a few hours to dislodge and, and kill off the 10. So he quickly got out of there before Grierson's Buffalo soldiers caught up with him. He went to the next watering hole only to find out there were 10 more there. And 
as a result, Victorio never got the water. Those, the Buffalo soldiers never gave up a single watering hole. And as a result, Victorio totally dry and, and his, his forces totally depleted, had to cross the Rio Grande. They got water there, but they were in too much of a hurry to keep going to stop and try to rehydrate and uh, uh, recuperate and get their strength back. So what he had to do is go deeper into Mexico, except this time Grierson had enough and he led his Buffalo soldiers against international law between the United States and Mexico. He led the Buffalo soldiers and they followed him willingly because they trusted Grierson and with good reason. So they ended up uh, trapping Victorio in the canyon and the Federales came up and together, Grierson and the Federales worked together until they finally had them boxed in. And then the Federales said, this is our country, we can handle this now. Uh, Americans, you need to leave. And Grierson was now understood, he had to go. And the Federales did the job. They finished off Victorio. And uh, then that, sage, that part of the Indian Wars was over. Nana came back later and with more, but not to the length. But think about that with the Buffalo soldiers. 10 people per watering hole. And yet the respect they were given was lacking. One well, of the, go ahead. Well, I'm thinking about this as you're telling me this. I mean, 10 versus 300, those are, I mean, I mean, nobody would really do that now or even back then. They'd want like equal forces, right? But it seemed to me that, you know, you think about the Buffalo soldiers, you think about World War I and World War II, where it really wasn't until the Vietnam War, almost 100 years later, that the contributions of the black soldier was actually respected and welcomed. Mm -hmm. Why did it take that long? Because you have the Tuskegee Airmen, you have other units, you know, serving bravely and honorably. Was it just our country's refusal to to accept that these men were just as brave and honorable as other nationalities, races? The, the, the problem, and, and you're right, the problem is history is written by historians. And the historians were white. And they were writing about, um, and, and even the cowboys, a very large percentage, at least a third, of cowboys were black. But when you look at the old Western movies and the old Western TV and the old Western novels, they're all white. They're written out of it. And it's like um, when I started the article on uh, Buffalo soldiers, I wrote, without proper attention, history becomes the recording of selective memory rather than documentation of complete facts. Such was the fate of the deeds and contributions of the Buffalo soldiers of the American Southwest. Unfortunately, many generations of all races were denied the opportunity to understand and appreciate these great warriors. History is now repairing itself. And that was one of the other reasons I wrote the article, is in an attempt to repair some history. Uh, you've read some of my, my other articles where I don't just go with what people wrote. I go and I, uh, if the people are still alive that made history, I go and find them. And uh, you, you find out interesting facts, even they didn't put in the books. Um, one of my favorites is uh, 
Paul Tibbetts, the man who dropped the bomb on uh, Hiroshima, and then Sweeney, uh, subordinate, dropped the bomb on uh, Nagasaki. Paul was fantastic. Another one we'll talk about in a little bit when we talk about Colin Powell is Sergeant Major of the Army Gates. He and I are working on his autobiography right now. Is go and find, don't, don't just look for what's in common textbooks, because that was written by somebody. Go and look at the historical documentation, the, the, the newspapers, and what they had to say at the time. Uh, like this one uh, I mentioned was totally despicable from Las Cruces. But um, it's interesting. Let's talk a little bit more on the Buffalo soldiers. When you look, at, you've seen the photograph of Teddy Roosevelt on top of San Juan Hill. Yep. He's in the center and the Rough Riders are on each side of him. If, unfortunately, that is just part of the photograph. If you look at the whole panoramic or uh, spread it out, that on both sides of him is parts of the 10th Cavalry, uh, which was under uh, uh, then uh, John Pershing, a young officer. They, they ended up going up San Juan Hill just like Teddy Roosevelt did. Except, and and in, in all honesty, Teddy Roosevelt and the Rough Riders took the wrong hill first. They took the hill beside it, and then they had to come across the saddle and get the right hill while the Buffalo Surgeons were coming up the right hill, and they, they merged together. But it was a joint operation. But we hear about Teddy Roosevelt charging up uh, San Juan Hill with the Rough Riders. Well, first off, they were on foot. And it, it, was, it was a right-angle move, the Buffalo Surgeons and Teddy Roosevelt's people coming in at the same time. So history, unfortunately, gets erased and it shouldn't be. So the Buffalo soldiers were in Cuba, but they were also in the Philippines. And here's where we really, lost. Yeah, and here's uh, where we lost something from the Philippines war. The United States, I guess all countries, we start the next war by fighting the last war, the way we did the last war. And the United States has never been in the same war twice in a row. Um, World War One was trench warfare. World War Two could have been, except you had guys like George Patton doing the breakout and, and learning don't fight this way. And then Korea was different. Vietnam was different. Well, when we went into Iraq, we, we, we should have gone back to the way it happened in the Philippines and studied, and we would have been much better off. But most people don't study the Philippines and they don't have the understanding. Let's go back there and see what they faced. And there was a lot of similarity. But the Buffalo soldiers were there. They were also in Persians, a punitive expedition into Mexico. And matter of fact, at the Battle of Bear Valley in Southern Arizona against the Apaches in 1918, that was the last war with the Native Americans, the last battle with the Native Americans. Because most people think by the 1890s, the Native American Indian Wars, as we call them, were over. And that's pretty much true, but not completely. And now, one last thing on the Buffalo Soldiers is we, uh, Custer refused to become part uh, of the Ninth Cavalry. He was offered command of the Ninth Cavalry, and he refused, saying, well, Custer was racist, among many, many other things. He was a racist. And he refused to command these, quote, as he called them, substandard soldiers. Wow. So that's when Hatch picked up the command. And, and the Ninth Cavalry was much better off under Hatch than it was under uh, um, Custer. 
Custer, as we know, he got himself wiped out when he uh, attacked against General Terry's orders. He goes charging into uh, a village of uh, Cheyenne and Sioux uh, uh, people, not realizing he's, uh, he's taken his 380 against 5,000. And I hate to say, well, for Custer, I don't hate to say it. He got what he deserved. Yeah. His brother Tom in Boston got what they deserved. Unfortunately, a lot of good soldiers like Miles Kehoe and the others, they didn't deserve that. And we wouldn't know the true history of what happened with Custer if not for the uh, Reno and Benteen, especially Benteen, and also the Native Americans to explain what happened. But anyway, Custer refused to take command of the Buffalo soldiers. And yet, when the Battle of Wounded Knee, it's unfortunate the way that started. But the 7th Cavalry ended up uh, taking actions that was not wise and resulted in the death of Sitting Bull, the murder of Sitting Bull. And the Sioux were, had the 7th Cavalry surrounded. The, the, what was reconstituted, the 7th Cavalry, Custer was long since dead. And it was the Buffalo soldiers stationed nearby who had to ride to get to the 7th Cavalry to prevent it from being a total slaughter. And they did. Otherwise, the 7th Cavalry this time would have been wiped out in its entirety. So the irony, as I mentioned, is they had to come to the rescue of the command that was once commanded by the person who refused to have anything to do with them. Let me, let me ask you this, because, you know, we have these situations we have the situation with tuskegee airmen and other things and you know you're you're a black man maybe some women serve too i don't know but you're you're black and you're serving and you know you're good at what you do you know that the enemy knows that you're you know better at what you do than you know other people but yet the very country that enslaved you that you know says all you're good for is picking cotton and doing menial tasks at best scorns you and at worst absolutely uses you a doormat what was inside these men that said you know what you know forget all that i'm going to be the best soldier i can be the best person i can be at this time and and deal with that even though most americans at the time didn't even care that they they served much less died it's a good question and it goes back to character of the individual. Okay. And uh, the, the, a person's character should be more important to that person than what other people think of them. Because the character is exactly who they are. And that is the case of the Buffalo soldiers and the Tuskegee Airmen, is they knew who they were and they, they were going to prove it to themselves, even if the rest of the world didn't accept it. And that speaks even better for the mark of the person is when I was, when I was in combat, I used to watch people chase awards and it used to irritate me. And Sergeant uh, Merrifield uh, with his cartoons, Bob on the fob, he had one called combat action badge chaser. It's this guy who wanted to get a combat action badge, but not get too close to combat. Uh, he, Sergeant Merrifield nailed it. Uh, with this, but we have a lot of people. They're more worried about getting an award than they are doing the job. The best of the soldiers 
And I have I, I broke down years ago categories of employees, categories of people. You got high performers, those who um, uh, meet requirements, those who stay out of trouble, and those who are problems. The Buffalo soldiers knew they were high performers. No matter what, how low others wanted to think of them, they didn't let it get them down. They had a lot to overcome. Um, and you mentioned the uh, Tuskegee Airmen, and it's a good segue to get into them. Is, uh, and one last thing on the Buffalo soldiers is they also ended up uh, in the late, uh, early 1900s serving as park rangers. You know that Smokey the Bear hat? Yeah. That's an old campaign hat that the Buffalo soldiers and other, uh, even the white soldiers were using at the time. So when the park rangers ended up uh, being formed in the early part of the 1900s, they stayed with the campaign hat that was used by the uh, the American soldiers. As a matter of fact, even in World War One, in the uh, the Mexican punitive campaign, you see them wearing those campaign hats. Uh, so that's where that came from. And the the, uh, the path up Mount Whitney, the first path that went up Mount Whitney for tourists, that was built by Buffalo soldiers. No kidding. So moving on to the Tuskegee Airmen, as much as probably the Buffalo soldiers, maybe more, because Jim Crow laws had a time to take effect. Yeah. They ended up having to overcome Jim Crow laws. In, in, in 1939, there was a, a, a funding that was approved, and it was proposed by uh, Senator Harry Schwartz to go ahead and create uh, Army Air Corps regiments of black airmen remember back then it was the segregation fortunately right. harry truman in 48 put an end to that it should have been put an end to a long time before that but harry truman brought an end to it but before that and it was funded but the intent was well there are very few registered black pilots so therefore we don't have to worry about it even if we fund it there's no pool that they could draw from well, that was a mistake because yes, there were uh, there was limited amount of formal recognized pilots, but a lot of them had training. And then add to that when it was realized there were thousands upon thousands of applicants, well, we'll set the standards so high that they will not be able to come in. Well, guess what? A bunch of them proved that they can come in. And by setting the standards so high, it actually made the Tuskegee Airmen more intelligent, more qualified than many of their white counterparts. Well, just so, I, I remember uh, reading, I mean, story after story uh, in World War II where uh, they were on B-17 escorts, and the, once the Germans figured out who was, you know, guarding the B-17s, they were like, "We we're not even going to bother." because we're going to get killed if we go after these B-17s. And again, kind of like the Buffalo soldiers, they, they, they just, not until years later, sir, got the recognition they deserved, but they performed at this amazing level. They did things with the Mustang that, you know, their other pilots could, didn't even think about doing. They just, even took down jets? Yes. And, uh, so in one day, they took down three jets over Berlin in uh, 1945. But what, and, and how they got recognized is they put those red tails. They painted their tails red. Uh, so uh, that that became pretty obvious when the uh, Germans would get closer. When you, when you look at it, the, the legacy of the 370, three, uh, 
332 uh, uh, fighter group and the 477th bombardment uh, group, those guys went in for business. They went through a lot of training. And they, the reason they got the Tuskegee Airmen uh, title is they were trained at the Tuskegee Air, uh, Institute. And then they were able to uh, go ahead and get the wings. And they even showed up in uh, North Africa. And um, when they were doing their training, probably one of the best first ladies we ever had was I was Ellen getting ready to ask you about Ellen. Eleanor Roosevelt. Okay, she, tell me that story. What happened is Eleanor was not afraid to speak up to her husband and tell him when she was wrong. Uh, she really ripped into him over putting the Japanese in concentration camps. When Mahala Jackson was being denied to sing at a forum of a historical society that Eleanor Roosevelt was a member of. Eleanor Roosevelt said, I resign right now. Well, she went down in 1939 to Tuskegee and she went out for half an hour with one of their flight instructors up in the air. And when the thing, uh, the plane landed, she said, well, you can fly all, all right. Um, and she just complimented him. Now that the first lady went up in the plane, and it wasn't like Hillary Clinton saying, I got shot at coming into Bosnia, which she didn't. Eleanor Roosevelt went right up in that plane. And remember, planes in 1939 is not like flying on a 747 today. Uh, so Eleanor Roosevelt had no problems going up in this double-seater and flying around for half an hour with a black man at the controls and validating to the world. We can trust them to fly. And she opened up the door because the very next month, they started pushing forward with the program. Um, and as you, you mentioned- know, you know, that, that, that brings up one thing that you know, we kind of talked about with uh, you know, Denisha's case and leadership and, and being effective. Sometimes it takes that one person to say, this is wrong. And to, and to show that, hey, I'm, I'm serious about that to make change. All it takes is one sometimes. It's, it's a theme I'm seeing more and more. And you're right. And that's one of the, the, the good things that we have going on with Never Alone. It's not just one of us. There's a bunch of us. Absolutely. General officers who are saying enough. And uh, we're not going to let this ri uh, rise. And uh, I've seen Amy Frank, the leader of Never Alone. If she's fighting a cause and she gets ignored, She'll send an email to Jim McConville or to Mark Milley, the, the uh, chairman of the Joint Chiefs and the chief of staff of the Army. And it's amazing. Uh, we had a colonel one time, and it was against a Jewish soldier. The colonel was ignoring the treatment this Jewish soldier was going through. And he verbally told Amy, basically, go pound sand. She, she sent an email to the chief of staff of the Army. And within 24 hours, that colonel found out the wrath of a four-star general uh, getting involved. And that young uh, Jewish soldier got the treatment he should have gotten uh, 28 days earlier. So you're right. One person uh, can make a difference and standing up for what's right. So, and, all, so, so these Buffalo soldiers and, you know, all these guys serving up through the Tuskegee Airmen and into Vietnam lays the foundation for a person like, you know, General Colin Powell to, to join the army and not only, you know, succeed, but thrive and make a lasting impression. You know, you served around the, the time he was in. What was the army like at that time? When, when I entered my enlisted tour back in uh, 
72. Remember in the 60s, we had the race riots. We had the, we had a lot of things. Uh, Robin Williams once said, if you live through the, if you remember the 60s, you weren't there. Well, it's, uh, so in 70s, we had the residual effect. We still had racial problems and it went both ways. But by the 80s, we were coming out of that. Colin Powell, he was born in 37. And uh, by 62, he had completed ROTC, not West Point, not any of the military institutes. He had completed ROTC in New York City um, in geology. It was his degree. He went in in 62, 63. He was in Vietnam. He was in the front line. Uh, he got injured by a punji stick, uh, which affected his walking for a long time come. Uh, then in 65, he was back in Vietnam as a major. He made one, and it, it, it wasn't his fault, but he wrote a document. It, it was just reported up through the chain about the My Lai massacre. And Powell, as the assistant division uh, operations officer, was assigned to do a report and analyze it. And what the general really wanted was for Powell to say, no, this can't possibly can't be happening. Well, when he wrote this report, he did say, this, this hasn't happened because you can look at the close relationship. Well, then it came out the My Lai massacre, in fact, did occur. Powell learned from that. As a matter of fact, when he was the assistant ops chief, the helicopter he was in crashed with the division commander on board. And Powell... Uh, even though he was injured, he ended up pulling the division commander, the two-star, and three others from the helicopter. He saved their lives to get them away from that helicopter before anything worse happened. And uh, um, then in, uh, he ended up uh, coming back for one more tour in 70 to 71. So Powell knew Vietnam. He knew combat really well. By 79, he was a brigade uh, brigadier general. And then he was assigned as an assistant Casper Weinberger. This played a critical role in his life in time to come. And then for, he went from Weinberger's assistant to being national security advisor for Ronald Reagan. So this is, this is rising fast, but he, he was the right man to do it. When Desert Storm occurred, he was now chairman of the Joint Chiefs. He had the knowledge of combat. He knew what needed to be done. He knew national security. He was, again, the right man in the right place. And also, he was the right person to control Norman Schwarzkopf. Storm really? And Norman, oh, and Storm and Norman was a character. Uh, so he, so a, he, he didn't get that nickname for nothing, Storm and oh, Norman. Oh, no. Uh, you see old photographs of uh, Storm and Norman in Vietnam. He is out there with those light, uh, light uh, long-range uh, Vietnam units all by himself in uh, no, uh, Storm and Norman was a big guy, but he was out there with no problem. He had quite a combat record himself. And he had the personality where he got the term the bear. He would growl over somebody in a heartbeat, but he couldn't do it to Colin Powell. Even though Colin Powell was much smaller in size, Colin Powell also had that combat record. Colin Powell had the big picture down. And uh, he had learned something from Casper Weinberger, and it's called the Powell Doctrine. It was the Weinberger-Powell Doctrine. The best thing you can do from one of your mentors is learn from him and apply the lessons in the future. And Powell did. 
And he tried to push that on the Bush administration later when he was Secretary of State. Bush made a big mistake, W. Bush. Yeah. He should have picked Colin Powell as his vice president, not Cheney, Powell. And if he had done, Powell wanted Pennsylvania Governor Tom Ridge to be Secretary of Defense. Tom Ridge was also a combat warrior from Vietnam before um, he ended up going back to school, getting his law degree. Ridge Powell would have kept us from going into Iraq, as we did. We had no legal reason to go into Iraq. I was the anti-terrorism officer there. I realized we shouldn't be there. Powell was originally telling them, let diplomacy work. Let me work this out. He was trying to apply the, apply the Powell doctrine, which is, is it vital to national security interest? Do we have a clear, attainable objective? Have the risks and costs been fully and frankly evaluated? Have all other nonviolent policy means been fully exhausted? And that's what he was hitting on hard with Bush and Cheney and Wolfowitz and Rumsfeld. Is there a plausible exit strategy to avoid endless engagement? Have the consequences of our action been fully considered? Is the action supported by the American people? And is it supported by the international community? Powell kept hitting that. Unfortunately, Cheney, um, Rumsfeld, and Bush was uh, pushing it too hard. And as a soldier, he was loyal. He was given bad information by uh, George Tenet and the CIA. And he actually told them, this is useless. I can't trust it. No, no, no. You got to go brief the UN on this. And he said, to, oh, I remember that. I said, remember that. Yeah, you better be sitting right behind me because I don't trust this information myself. And it turned out to be wrong. Sometimes we make a mistake early in life and we think we'll always learn from it. Unfortunately, the mistake he made about uh, documenting the My Lai massacre, I wish he had recalled and says, I'm not going in this path again. I resign. But he was too much of a soldier. He said, okay. But, Tenet, you're going to be sitting behind me while I do this. Later, when it was proven to be false, and as the anti-terrorism officer, I ended up uh, part of that massive search. Let's go find these, these sites that uh, they so-called had. Well, the Iraqis didn't have the sites. If we had gone in during the days of Desert Storm uh, years earlier, we probably would have found the sites. But Tarek Aziz who I got to know when I was later the, uh, um, the operations chief for the Task Force 134 detention operations, told us we gave, got rid of those things years ago. But if Colin Powell had been listened to, one, by getting Tom Ridge as the Secretary of Defense, not Rumsfeld, we wouldn't have been pushed into that war. Two, the, the Weinberger-Powell doctrine would have been listened to. But of that entire administration, only Colin Powell has stepped forward and said, I was wrong. Yep. Yeah, w. Bush true. never admitted it. Nope. Cheney never admitted it. Rumsfeld was too arrogant to admit it. Wolfowitz never admitted it. Colin Powell said, I was wrong. And he said, people will never trust me again. Well, that was an unfair evaluation of himself. But that is the character of the individual. He will give himself a harder evaluation and grow from that. And you, you mentioned earlier, about how does somebody uh, uh, push himself against adversity because they look at the character of themselves. And that's what Colin Powell did. 
he was always working on the character of himself. He did have to come up as a minority at a time when it was a lot more difficult to be successful, but he pushed himself multiple tours in Vietnam, the punji stick, the crashing of the helicopter, and he kept pushing forward. A lot of people, you're in a helicopter that crashes, you're not going to want to get another one. And I'll tell you how he stayed focused. And as I'm working with Sergeant Major of the Army Gates on his autobiography, we talked about Colin Powell. Powell was uh, chairman of the Joint Chiefs when uh, Gates was uh, Sergeant Major of the Army. Gates told me, and this was just recently, Gates said, I'd be working in my office and I'd get a call from the chairman. Gates, I need you up here to talk. Uh, so Major Gates would go up. Sir, what is it? Sit down. I need the ground truth on this. I need to know what is really going on on the ground. And um, uh, the same name as the, the big uh, computer uh, uh, billionaire, Bill Gates. But Sergeant Major of the Army, Bill Gates, Julius Bill Gates, if you want to find out what the truth is, you ask Gates, and you're going to get it. And you're going to get it in North Carolina farm boy terms. He's going to give it to you straight out. And, uh, and that's what Powell was looking for. Tell me what's going on. So that is the character of Powell. A lot of people... Uh, Bill, and Paul once also made a statement about leading, commanding. And he said, you must always have your soldiers, your subordinates, feel that they can come to you with a yes. problem. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's something like that. Well, yeah, go ahead and finish it, please. And because the minute they feel you, they can't come to you is the minute you stop commanding. Yeah. So he would actually get people, come and tell me what's going on. There's following the chain of command, but there's also like, you know, I, I don't want to be bothered with your problem. And, and it's like, okay, what are you doing then? You, you know, I can't trust you. And the one I found that is often most used is when somebody, you bring a problem to the attention of somebody, you get a temper tantrum in return. Yep. What that is, is creating an environment where you're not going to come and bring me your problems. Because if you bring them to me, then I know about them. They may backfire on me. So I'll create an environment where I don't find out anything wrong. Well, that's not commanding. That's self-preservation. Powell, on the other hand, wouldn't just welcome people coming to him. When he, he was feeling something wasn't quite right, Sergeant Major, come on, come on over here. I got to talk to you. I got to find out what's going on at ground level. There is one more recognition that is happening now, taking place. Uh, Doris Miller, the, the warrior, the Navy uh, seaman from Pearl Harbor. What happened is uh, he was there on his ship when the Pearl Harbor attack occurred. And he was, he, he was working in, in the mess because that's all the jobs they could get at the time. Well, he ended up going topside and manning a gun that he wasn't trained on, but he actually made it work. And he was able to lay suppressive fire and help his, uh, help his shipmates. And then later, he ended up getting assigned to another ship. Uh, well, first, in, after, after Pearl Harbor, they put him on tour uh, for a uh, uh, bond tour for a couple months. And then when he came back, he was assigned to the uh, Lipscomb Bay and unfortunately, 
November 24th, 1943, that got sunk and it took his life as well. For a long time, he was ignored for his great work that he did as a warrior, as a black American. Now, the United States government is correcting itself and the Gerald Ford class carrier is in the shipyard right now being named after him. That's, that's the right thing. It is. Yes. Normally, carriers are man, uh, named after pre presidents like um, uh, the Kennedy, the uh, um, uh, the Ford, yeah, or great admirals like the Nimitz, or battles like Midway. But it is the right thing to do to mention this great warrior who not only did great warrior, great fighting work while Japanese planes are flying, but then ended up giving his life in service of his country. So, you know, we've gone from the past of Buffalo soldiers through history with the Tuskegee Airmen and, a, and a, an amazing leader like, you know, General Powell. You know, today's military, you know, there's still some people who think that if you're from another racial ethnicity, there's still not a path forward for you. What do we tell those people who are either on the fence about joining the military or maybe in the middle of their military career and feel that their skin color may be an impediment? In a way, it reminds me of almost like country music. You look at today's singers, and let's take the females. Okay. Where would Dolly Parton, Loretta Lynn, Taylor Swift be without Patsy Cline? Somebody has gone before. Yeah. Likewise, Colin Powell went before. All the, Doris Miller went before. And they blazed open a trail. Minorities have the opportunity to follow that legacy as well. I, I came in as a uh, growing up in a small New England town. I knew how to use the, an axe. I knew how to use a shovel and a pick. Uh, I wasn't so good with a gun, but I ended up going in the military as a private, working my way through the ranks. And that opportunity is afforded to everybody. When you look at the United States military, we got some problems right now that they need to fix. The last time I was on, I told you about my, my six kill zones. If somebody in my command was a racist and they were out there pushing their racism, that person and I were gonna have some serious problems and it was gonna be a one-way fight. If they abused their authority for their personal gain or pleasure, sexual abuse, sexual harassment, and I went right down the pike. That is the kind of leadership that we need in the military now, not people trying to arbitrate their way through problems and ignore problems. So we have those issues that we're fighting right now, and we're going to keep on fighting so that we can produce officers like Colin Powell yeah. and even Norman Schwarzkopf. Uh, as much of a bear as he was, he was very, very effective, and he had a genius for war. We don't need Custers. We need Colin Powells. We need Hatches. We need Grissons. We need Henry Flippers. So for somebody to not want to join the military because of fear of their race, no, or their religion, definitely join. You can be the next, you know, Colin Powell. You can be the, the next Tuskegee Airman if you, you want it, whether, whether you're, regardless of what skin color you are, it's really on your character to be the kind of 
soldier that's better than than you know what you think you can be and to cap off what you just said you know the army is now going back to be all you can be as its motto well i mean it was a good one it was why did we go to army of one well, uh, i always wondered that sir because it's like you're not an army of one no uh and to us when it came out, what is this? It's all about me. Because remember, when it came out, it was the me generation. Be all you can be applied to individuals. It applied to squads. It applied to companies. Applied all the way up. Be all you can be. I loved it. And when uh, they finally the Army realized Army of One was a bad saying, look at the Marines, the few and the proud. They kept it. Yeah. They knew they had a good thing. They didn't let it go. The Army did. So rather than say back in the late 90s, turn of the millennium, Army of One is not a good slogan. They went to Army Strong. Okay, that's a little bit better, but it doesn't give the challenge. Finally, whoever made that decision to get away from Army of One is long since retired from the rank, probably no longer alive, so now we can go back. And with Army of One, and that's a correction, uh, be all you can be. And that's what it should be, encouraging every person to recognize the Army in all the military branches are a place where you can be all you can be. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, I can't wait to talk with you again about so many other things, sir. It's, it's this, this time just flies and I'm having a good time listening and I learned so much. And I think that's the theme for, you know, this, this, this conversation, you know, it is your character and we can learn so much from the character of these amazing soldiers from the Buffalo time to present day. And I just want to thank you for your time and sharing with me. Travis, always a pleasure, both on radio and our conversations off radio. Thank you, sir. Well, again, you, you've heard it here from uh, U.S. Army Colonel Retired Wesley Martin. And I just thank you for your time. And as we say in Oscar Mike Radio, we are Mission in Flight. Thank you. Join us on National Wreaths Across America Day, December 16th, 2023. Each December on National Wreaths Across America Day, our mission to remember, honor, and teach is carried out by coordinating wreath-laying ceremonies at Arlington National Cemetery, as well as more than 3,700 additional locations in all 50 states, at sea and abroad. Join us by sponsoring a veteran's wreath at a cemetery near you, volunteering, or donating to a local sponsor group. Thank you for listening and watching Oscar Mike Radio, where our active duty service members and veterans are in action and the mission is in flight. If you are a veteran or know a veteran who needs help, please dial 998 and press 1 for the Veterans Crisis Line.